Hello, I'm James Holland and this is Chalk Valley History Hit. Now, it's a very great pleasure indeed to introduce this next speaker. James Hennage and I had the idea of setting up a history festival here in the Chalk Valley some eight years ago now. Well, to be honest, I wanted to set up an arts festival and he suggested we make it just about history. You're a historian, he said. I love history and I'm starting to write historical novels. It could be brilliant. Well, he was quite right and it proved an inspired decision. At least, I'd like to think so. Formerly the founder and head of the wonderful Otterker's book chain, James has since become a successful writer. His Rise of Empires novels are terrifically rich tales of Greece and the Ottoman Empire and beyond. And his latest, By Blood Divided, is another fabulous story set during the Great Siege of Constantinople. If you haven't had a chance to read any of them yet, I really do urge you to do so, as they're everything anyone could possibly want from a historical novel. A kind of Game of Thrones, but real events. They're fabulous. At Chalk Valley last year, however, he went a little bit off-piste and was talking about the Rani of Janzi, one of India's great heroines and the Indian Mutiny of 1857. A brilliant communicator, James always talks with terrific passion and verve, and no less so here as he tells the story of an extraordinary woman living through a very difficult but utterly fascinating time in India's tumultuous history. talk today about the Rani of Jhansi, India's Joan of Arc, and the story of the Indian Mutiny, and the story of somebody else as well who will remain a surprise. Um, why is the Rani of Jhansi so famous? Um, if you Google Rani of Jhansi, you get endless pictures of Bollywood beautiful women, uh, you get statues, uh, you get um, book covers, you get um, uh, magazine articles. She is the heroine of India, possibly next to Gandhi. She's a tremendous, and the reason she's so famous is because she is a symbol of India's war of independence, what they choose to call the first war of independence, what we call the Indian mutiny. She is, as I suggest, India's Joan of Arc. And in the same way that the French have used Joan of Arc to portray their version of the unification of France, you might say, and what happened in the Hundred Years' War, quite often conveniently forgetting Cressy and Agincourt and Poitiers and other minor reverses like that. So the Rani of Jhansi has come to define what the Indians want to take out of what we call the Indian Mutiny. Um, she's famous also because she had every attribute that you need for a great leader. She was beautiful. She was strong. She was a, a wonderful leader. She was probably the only good leader that the rebels had during the Indian Mutiny. Uh, and most importantly, she was genuinely and massively wronged by the English. And we were the ones that set her on course to lead the last part of the Indian Mutiny. Antonia Fraser wrote, the mixture of injustice, insensitivity, indifference displayed by the British administration towards the Rani of Jhansi might perhaps stand as a microcosm of the whole mutiny. So that is why she's so interesting. Why am I fascinated by her? I'm fascinated by her because my family's history is, in a very strange way, caught up in hers. And that will be the, I hope, interesting surprise that I will give to you at the end. Um,
as always, Susie Brockbank late as ever. There are two, there are two seats here. Oh, you found them, have you? Good, thank you. Always count on her. Um, so I suppose the first question to ask is, was this really, is there any justification for whether this was the first war of independence? The answer to that is emphatically no. For a start, only a very small part of India, can you see these slides? Yeah. Only a very small part of India was caught up in the mutiny. Um, it was mainly in the north. Um, it was pretty much only the Bengal army, out of three armies, that rose, and not all of them rose. Um, there was no alternative put forward by the uh, rebels um, to British rule. Uh, most of the leaders uh, either did it for opportunistic reasons or they did it because they were coerced and quite often threatened to be killed if they didn't lead their part of the mutiny. But perhaps most importantly, India at this stage was not a nation. It was, if you like, Germany before unification. It was a country of many, many, many states, one of which was the British Raj, uh, which by this stage owned about two-thirds of it. And it's interesting, for instance, that one of the areas that didn't rise up, which was the northwest, the Punjab, which could have done because they'd just been defeated in the two Sikh wars, they didn't ri ri rise up because they actually blamed the Easterners, the Bengal army, who had fought in the, with the British army in those Sikh wars, the people they called the Easterners, far more than they did the British for having lost their kingdom, which is interesting. But to understand the Indian Mutiny, first of all, we need to go back to what was the British Empire at this time. Now, in 1857, when the Indian Mutiny started, Britain was at the absolute height of its power. Economically, militarily, uh, reputationally, it was at the very height. If you consider that in three years, between 1853 and 1856, we managed to declare war on Russia, Iran, or Persia as it was then, and China, and win all of those wars. If you can imagine that happening today. Um, this was the Pax Britannica. It was before the scramble for Africa, so we didn't have um, those parts. Can you, can you see this slide? You can, good. So we didn't have all of these parts of Africa that we were to have 50 years later. But what we did have was three jewels. We had Canada. Obviously, we'd lost um, America in the, in, in the American War of Independence, 1783. Uh, we had India. We had Australia. To give you some comparison of populations, which in a way is some testimony to how important they were to us, the population in 1857 of Australia was 300,000 people. The population of Canada was about 3 million. The population of India was 300 million. This was a fantastic market for our industrial revol uh, revolution, and it was a an economic jewel in our crown. The other thing that's important to note is, of course, that we had no competition. The French had been pretty much paralyzed after the, the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the Spanish, their empires were all in decline. Um, uh, Pretty much the, the Germans were yet to unify. Pretty much the only competition that we had were the Russians. Uh, and because we were con concerned about Russian designs on India, because we were concerned about what they were planning to do to dismember the Ottoman Empire, we chose to declare war on them in 1853, which became 
the, so four years before the start of the mutiny, uh, which became the disaster that was the Crimean War. And what I want to show you now is a film clip. Forgive me, it goes on for about a couple of minutes, but I think it's good because it's the beginning, it's the opening sequences of that marvellous 1968 left-wing polemic, Tony Richardson's Charge of the Light Brigade. And what it shows is exactly what Britain thought of itself at this time. Yeah, brilliant. So isn't that fun? I mean, that was, you probably all remember that. But that's how Britain saw itself, a sense of divine right, heaven sent, um, and the world's policeman, hence the police hat put on the line. Uh, the, as we all know, the Crimean War was a disaster. And it was a disaster because it exposed the terrible, terrible problems within the British Army. Um, and what the film is about, actually, is the sclerotic nature of the British Army at this time. And I'm going to show you one more, much shorter clip. And I want you to listen to the last words um, uttered by the unbelievably great Trevor Howard. I hope you can see this. You probably can't, but I apologise. Do I need to press again? Thank you. Bleu de noir. You are drinking beer, sir. Porter beer. No, my lord. Yes. No. See it? No, my lord. Don't you know me? That is a black bottle. I assure you, my lord. That is a black bottle, and you are drinking porter from it. Champagne only. In point of fact, I asked Captain Nolan if... You knew that! I am not aware. I am aware you are drinking porter at my table. Sit down, Captain Nolan. Sit down, Featherstone Hall. What his lordship said was that champagne only was to be drunk in the mess tonight. What he said... It is not porter, it is Moselle, my lord. Apologize! If I am in error. Error? Don't quibble with me, sir. Beer! I will not have beer drunk in my mess. Come back, Nolan! Nolan, you will not leave the mess! Dog! Devil upstart! Impertinent Indian dog devil! And cut. So, impertinent Indian dog devil. This was the problem in the British Army. There were two armies. One which was unbelievably sclerotic, class-bound, appalling in pretty much every way. The uh, Duke of Cambridge was about to, we're, we're a long way away from um, conducting his army rep uh, reforms. The other one was the Indian Army, which was uniquely looked down on by this army. And Nolan is not liked because he's got an Indian servant, because he's come from India with a lot of newfangled ideas, uh, because he's quite professional, which they don't really like, because he probably got his promotion from merit rather than money. And he's generally loathed by Trevor Howard. So we have two armies, both in need of reform. But before this could happen, the injury broke out. And I'm going to take you now to 9 a.m. on Sunday, the 10th of May, 1857. It is Delhi, and it is the start of the hot season. By 8 o'clock in the morning, it is 100 degrees in the shade. Anyone with any sense either goes and lies in a cold bath in their bungalow, or lies at least on their bed, where the tatties, which were the, which were the um, uh, blinds, uh, which were poured over with water, would bring in whatever meagre air, fresh air, could be brought in. It was a punishing, punishing time to be alive in India at that time. 
In the Telegraph office, just outside Delhi, is Charles Dodd, Brandish, and Pilkington, three members of the civil administration. And they're just contemplating going home for the day to be spent either in the bath or on bed when they see the needle move. And it's a message that's come in from Meerut, which is about 45 miles northeast of Delhi, a big military base. And it said that on that day, the 85 uh, members of the 3rd Native Cavalry Regiment have been put in shackles for refusing to use the new cartridges that have been uh, issued by the British Army for the new Enfield rifle. By the end of that day, there will have been a massacre of Europeans at Meerut. And because of the inadequacies of the British uh, command there, the mutineers, joined by other regiments at Meerut, would be on their way to Delhi. So, how did it get to this? Now, I'm afraid I'm going to take you back into the past again to give you some idea of the context of India at this time. So it all starts with Genghis Khan. So much does. Genghis Khan's empire, the Mughal Empire, gets bigger and bigger. Tamerlane then comes as his successor. The third version of that, um, uh, the descendants of Tamerlane move south, um, south into India. They take Delhi and they set up... Uh, Baba sets up uh, the Mughal emperor, Empire and his successor, Akbar, is its greatest ruler. He rules around the end of the 17th century. And um, on 31st of January 1600, Elizabeth I grants the charter to the East India Company. In 1613, Jahangir, who is the successor of Akbar, allows them to set up their first outpost or factory in Surat, then they allows them to set them up in Bombay, Calcutta, and elsewhere. By 1700, the only serious competitor that the British have in India are the French, apart from, obviously, the, the Indian princes and the Mughal Empire. Um, by the 1750s, the Indian, uh, East India Company is doing so well that its annual dividend never falls below 5%, and a quarter of British Im imports come from India, come from the, uh, the East India Company. But after that, the Mughal Empire starts going into decline. And by, 17, by the mid-1750s, uh, sorry, by the mid-18th century, you see this long process of decline where, bit by bit, the uh, Mughal Empire is invaded from outside. There is infighting. And during that time, the East India Company is given the status in 1675 of feudatory ruler, which means that the first time that they're seen on an equal footing as the other princes of India. Then the British sense their opportunity. They have to get rid of the French, and they have to get rid of the native princes. And they choose two European wars to get rid of the French, uh, the War of the Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War. And at uh, the end of the second of those, at the Battle of Plessy, uh, the great Clive of India defeats the French and Indian, um, and the first State of Bengal is set up under the, um, uh, under the uh, East India Company. Then happens a long process of conquest where the Indian princes, the major Indian princes, one by one are taken on and overcome. Mysore falls, um, Hyderabad, uh, actually Hyderabad doesn't fall, uh, Marathas, um, and eventually it will come to the Punjab and the Sikh kingdom. So by 1900, the company is the undisputed master of India. 
The Mughal Emperor is a pensioner in Delhi and not much more. There are two more wars for the, Indi for the British uh, East India Company to fight. One is in Sindh, where Napier um, uh, 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 conquers Sindh in 1843, and then the two Sikh wars, uh, which end in 1849, which take the, um, the uh, frontier of India right the way up to, through Baluchistan, as you can see, this is where Sindh is, and there as well, and through the Punjab, and it takes it up, to, moves the, um, the um, frontier of the empire right up to Afghanistan. Um, so, by 1857, the East India Company is ruling about two-thirds of India, not all of it. They are doing so as the agents of the British crown, and the other princes that are not um, under British sway are forced to have British political officers and also to have uh, British officers commanding their armies. So, to all intents and purposes, the British are in control. They, at this stage, set up three presidencies. And this is quite a useful map because the bits that are purple are the bits that, in 1857, are owned by the British and the bits that aren't, are, in fact, Mysore was pretty much owned by it, but they still had sort of titular power, uh, are the bits that are still um, independent. Anyway, the, the, they, the East India Company sets up three presidencies, Bengal, Bombay, and Madras. And the important thing to remember is that the Indian mutiny was entirely the army of the presidency of Bengal. They were the only people, really, who took to the field against the British. Um, but how things had changed. In the century before this, the British had been much, much gentler, more sensitive masters of India. Uh, a lot of British officers had had Indian mistresses, Indian wives. They'd married within the Indian. Uh, the, um, they had uh, administered Hindu temples. If there was a Hindu ceremony, they would pile their swords next to their soldiers' muskets in respect to the deity. And they generally had an understanding that they were there for the purpose of trade. Then something changed. And by the time that 1857 came along, a trader or merchant was known as in the, by the derogatory term of box waller. And there was a general contempt. I like this slide because um, I think it's probably a bit later than our time, but it gives you the general idea of the British in India. There was a general contempt and there was a local contempt. The general contempt perhaps is best summed up by Lord Macaulay, who wrote, medical doctrines that would disgrace an English farrier, astronomy that would be laughed at by girls in an English boarding school, history abounding with kings 30 foot high and geography made up of seas of treacle and butter. That's how he saw the Indians. To some extent, he was right. There'd be no Hindu had, had dissected a human body for the purpose of anatomy until 1836. But there was also a local contempt. And for, at, in 1825, the first steamship sailed from Britain to uh, India. And by the 1850s, regularly, British steamships were coming. And what they brought with them was the British Mem Sahib. So this was the wife or the would-be wives of the uh, people who, the British who ruled India. And they brought with them their own insularities, their own petty snobberies, their own intolerance, so that the term native became a word of opprobrium. Uh, people, there was special opprobrium that was uh, applied to 
the Eurasians, people, people, sorry, the Anglo-Indians, people who were the um, who were born out of uh, out of uh, Indian and, and British stock, who were known as the Blacky Whites, and there was this um, local contempt. Contempt was also there within the British themselves. So the rigidity of class uh, was there within the British themselves. The senior British there looked down very much upon the juniors. Here is Lady Canning who was the wife of the Governor-General. The Indian families, she said, I don't mean half-caste or of Indian blood, but people who are of the families always connected to India and who have only been sent home to be educated are more insipid and dull than words can express and generally very underbred. There was a real hatred amongst the people who were serving in India of the climate. Not everybody, but a large part of them. They didn't understand this ancient culture. It was very hot, which they weren't used to, and they were wearing the wrong clothes. It was anybody who's been to India knows this. There's an incessant noise, which you either love or hate. They didn't like being served the, the food. They didn't like being served lamb chops too often for breakfast. William Arnold, this is the son of, um, of famous Arnold of rugby, wrote... You would hate India. Everybody does. The best men who work hard hate it. The worst like it best. They can get drunk here, and that is about all they want. Even the Governor-General, um, who preceded Lord Canning, Lord Dalhousie, said, I don't deny that I detest the country and many of the people in it. This is the Governor-General. I don't proclaim it, but I don't doubt that my face does not conceal it. That is the man who was sent over to govern India. Above all, what they hated about India was that it was so bloody slow. They'd had the Great Exhibition in 1851. It had reached India. In 1853, 4,000 miles of telegraph had already been laid between Bombay and Calcutta and um, Madras in the south. In 1853, the first railway line had been uh, run between Thane and Bombay. In 1857, the first university was set up in Calcutta, the University of South, the multidisciplinary university set up in Calcutta. And at home, you had this religious revival. Um, we'd, we, we, we'd had Cardinal Newman, the Oxford movement, and this had been reflected within India by people like Sir William Sleeman, who just died, who had um, wiped out the thuggies. So that India, combined with this sense of hurry, was also this poisonous mix of religious fundamentalism that was coming out of British Britain that saw this need to... They saw India almost as a battleground between right and wrong. And there are many, many people writing at the time who express it. Kipling said of India... He obviously said, East is East and West is West. But one of my favourite bits is this. He wrote in his poem, And the end of the fight is a tombstone white with the name of the late deceased. And the epitaph drear, a fool lies here who tried to hurry the East. And the problem was that we sent in this man, Lord Dalhousie, who interestingly is my ancestor on my mother's side. We're going to talk about the one on my father's side later. Just thought I'd put that in. Anyway, Lord Dalhousie came in, and um, he was a great reformer. He was a man in a, in, in a hurry. People said they did not mention his name without lowering their voices and looking nervously over their shoulders. 
He was a man in a hurry to reform everything from land to railways to education to everything he could put to language to everything he could find. And he f saw that there were two ways of doing it. One was to do it gently by persuasion. The other one was the infamous doctrine of lapse. And the doctrine of lapse was this, that if a Maharaja or prince of a state died without natural heir, the British government took it upon themselves to annex that state, despite the fact that the Hindu religion very, very clearly states that uh, an adopted son is able to inherit, and he must do, because he must perform the all-important burial rites for his father, or he goes to hell. So it was an incredibly insensitive thing to do. Dalhousie um, annexed Satara, Nagpur, Jhansi, and then the big one, Oud, whose king was described by the British resident as sunk in the uttermost abysses of enfeebling debauchery, the delights of drawing, drumming, dancing, and manufacturing small rhymes. Well, he had had it. Oud was annexed in January 1856. But the problem with that was that three-quarters of the sepoys of the Bengal army, which was the army that rebelled, came from Oud. And I want to now talk about the sepoy, because the sepoy and the sour, who is the, his version in the cavalry, were at the heart of this. These were not pressed men. These were uh, part of the slightly impoverished yeoman gentry of Oud. They were subordinate, even their officers were subordinate to the most junior British officer and couldn't even give a command to a British sergeant major. Who were they commanded by? They were commanded by brigadiers who were in their 90s, colonels who were in their 70s, and captains quite often who were in their 60s or 50s. Um, the men who they served alongside on a ratio, the British soldiers at a ratio of about um, three to one, were in many respects rather junior to them, certainly physically. And they were also uh, still being flogged. So the British army, you had this extraordinary thing of the British army soldier being flogged in front of his Indian comrades. And this broke down a tremendous amount of respect between the two. The problem was that Lord Dalhousie had in, introduced a system of land reform which dispossessed a lot of these men and their families back at home of their property, and they didn't like it. Now, the other thing was that the contempt that I've described worked both ways because the British had, had, had suffered some very bad reverses quite recently, the most obvious of which was the retreat from Kabul when an army of 16,000 was wiped out. And the, and the sepoy knew about this. The invincibility of the British was in question. Now, there were other um, complaints, the Army Enlistment Act that required them to uh, serve abroad and dock their pay. And if they served abroad, they felt that they were going to lose caste. There was also the anniversary of Plassey, which was the time when it was reputed, it was believed, the legend had it, that, um, uh, that there would be an end to the British Raj. And there was this extraordinary thing of the chapatis being sent around. But the big thing was the cartridges. These cartridges that had been introduced for the new Enfield rifle that had to be bitten off in order to load the rifle, and which it was rumoured were a mixture of cow fat and pig fat, which were both, as you can imagine, abhorrent both to the Hindu and to the Muslim. And in fact, there's good evidence that some, but most of the cartridges weren't in fact that by the time that they'd been issued. But the point was that we didn't communicate. We did not tell them sufficiently well so that it was believed right up to the point of mutiny that we were trying to change their religion by this method. So now 
we come to the story of the, um, of the mutiny itself. And I like to see this as an act in three parts. It is, in many ways, a Greek tragedy. The first part is hubris, the second part is tragic consequence, and the third part is revenge and redemption. And I'm not going to dwell too long on, um, the, uh, on actually what happened, because it's quite... I'm not going to go into Ender's regiments and things, because um, it'll bore you. But I am going to give you, first of all, the cast. This is Lord Canning. He was the son of, third son of a prime minister. He was governor-general at the time. He'd been educated at Eton and Christchurch. And he may have foresaw what was going to happen. He said in a speech to the directors of the East India Company, I wish for a peaceful term of office, but we must not forget that the sky of India, serene though it is, a sudden storm may rise and overwhelm us with ruin. Next on, in the cast is General Anson, Colonel Carmichael Smith, and Major General Hewitt, and Brigadier Archdale Wilson, all of whom, to greater or lesser extents, were dunderheads. It was their actions, Anson less so than the others, and he died early, but it was their actions, mainly of remission, that meant that um, the mutiny spread as quickly as it did, and we'll come to that. And then, of course, on the other side, we have this man, Bahadur Shah, who is the last of the, he's aged 82, he's the last of the Mughal rulers, he is, he's in command of the Red Fort of Delhi and uh, little else, he's just been told by the East India Company that his title will die with him, and he's a man who had one eccentricity, which was a fixed belief that he could transform himself into a fly and convey himself to other countries and learn what was going on there. So he was a strange man. So. Let's go back to where we left off. It is the 10th of May, and we'll now go to Meerut. What's happened is that the 85 infantrymen, the sepoys who have refused to use the cartridges, have been uh, publicly humiliated. They've been put in irons. They've been given 10 years' hard labour by the uh, ineffable stupidity of Colonel Carmichael Smith, who commanded the regiment. But it was an, agree it was an order that had been agreed, agreed by General Anson. Considering the extent to which people understood what was going on, the fears that they had, this was a very, very stupid act indeed. So on the 10th of May, this happens. On the 11th of May, um, sorry, later on in the 10th of, sorry, the 9th of May, this happens. On the 10th of May, um, they rise up. Um, and um, the first thing they do is to seize whatever weapons they can and to massacre as many of the civilians, British civilians, that they can find in the city of Meerut who are uh, distant from the uh, cantonment. It was a strange place to choose because Meerut was probably one of the biggest military, British military presences in the whole of India. What is extraordinary is that no effort was made by the British commanders to put them down. All they did was to look with the considerable forces, British forces, relatively speaking, that they had at their disposal. The only thought they had was to defend their cantonment. And by the time that they did uh, think about doing anything about it, uh, the um, rebels were on their way to Delhi. So on the 11th of May, now at Delhi, the troops there, the Indian troops, because there are no British troops, have been paraded. And they've been told about uh, what's happened um, earlier to the execution of the first of the mutineers, who was a man called Mangal Pandey. I haven't told you about him because it's not that important, but he was the very first person who was executed for uh, defying British officers. Um, 
they tell him about this, there is much, much, much disgruntlement within the troops. Todd, who we've already heard about, who was the man who uh, was in the telegraph office, decides to go out and repair the line, the telegraph line, up to the northwest, which has been cut. And he wonders why. He goes off to repair it. He doesn't, re he doesn't uh, return. Three regiments arrive from uh, Meerut, uh, one of cavalry and two of infantry. Um, and they turn up, and the first person they go to is this man, Bahadur Shah, and they say, lead us, lead us. He doesn't really want to, so he sends them off to another palace outside uh, Delhi, and he says, I will see to your, to your grievances there. So they go off, and they manage, before the British can seal um, the gates of Delhi, they manage to break in, and they make for the magazine. And at the magazine is a very brave man called Willoughby, who with nine others and his Indian troops is already making preparations to defend the magazine because they've worked out that this is where the rebels are most likely to go. But because their own troops now turn on them, Willoughby decides to blow up the magazine. Um, and of those nine men, only three survived. Willoughby was one of the, the, those that died. And three Victoria Crosses were given to them. What happens to the rest of the um, British who are inside Delhi? They flee. A lot of them are massacred, but those that get away, about half of them, make it to a place called Flagstaff House, where they realize that they're not going to be safe for very much longer. So they begin to start making their way to Karnal, which is about five or six miles outside Delhi, where they know that there's a British force. What happens meanwhile inside? Well, no, first of all, um, very bravely, from Flagstaff House, uh, Brendish, who, if you remember, was the number two to Todd, is sent back to the telegraph house, and he makes one final message. Uh, he manages to find a line through to Ambala, and he sends a crucial message to tell them what's happened. And because he gets that message through using the telegraph, uh, what's hap what happens is in, in the northwest is that the uh, Bengal army that is there, not the Sikh army, but the Bengal army is disarmed. And that's a crucial part of making sure that the, 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 that, um, the, uh, the, the rebellion doesn't spread. In Delhi, we have the massacre not only of the British within Delhi, but also certain numbers of uh, about 45 British have turned up in the Red Fort seeking the protection of Bahadur Shah, this man. Shah, this man. He doesn't want to harm them, but his servants and sepoys grab hold of them and slaughter them. That is the end of part one. The rebels have moved to Delhi, they've set up base there, and the, uh, and the, and the revolution has spread. Now, we'll get to part two, and I'm now going to give you the cast of part two. This is the, this is the tragic consequences. First of all is Nana Sahib. He is the, the son of the last Maharatha, uh, Maharatha king who was exiled to Bithur, and his pension had just been cut off by the British, so he had an axe to grind. Um, and he turned out to be one of the worst and most nefarious of the, um, of the uh, rebels' leaders. Here we have some good guys. This is Sir Henry Lawrence, who was uh, one of the very few British. He, he was the... Um, commander of the Northwest um, provinces um, after the Sikh Wars. He didn't put into place the land reforms. He respected the feudal rights of the landowners there and therefore uh, didn't... Um, uh, so what, hap what happened in Oud did not happen there. 
This man is called Sir Henry Nicholson, who was an um, ardent Christian, like all of them. He was one of Lawrence's young men. He was a political officer in the Northwest. And at 34, he was the youngest brigadier general of the Bengal army. And we will come across a man called William Hodson, who was the, started Hodson's horse and, to begin with, was part of the Corps of Guides. So let's now go to the action. So the action, the news of Meerut and Delhi spreads. The, the, the news of Meerut and Delhi spreads quite slowly through the rebel lines because it's going by word of mouth. From the British lines, it goes very quickly because we have the telegraph. The British army in the north is mobilised, but it has no transport. On the 17th of May, uh, an army is sent down from Ambala to Karnal, where it is joined by Brigadier Archie Wilson, who's come from Meerut. On the 7th of June, they arrive in Delhi, they repel um, an enemy force and they occupy the ridge just outside Delhi after the Battle of Badli Ki Sarai when they drive the, um, the rebels back. They take, ridge and they, they take the ridge and they do one very stupid thing, which is that in an act of pure revenge, they set fire to the barracks next door of the sepoys. If they hadn't done that, they'd have had somewhere to shelter the many women and children who came up to the ridge to take um, shelter. Um, Many, many attacks from the rebels. 23rd of June was the biggest on the anniversary of the Battle of Plessy. They were all repulsed with huge loss. Um, Archidale Wilson is ta takes over because Anson has died. His replacement, Bernard, then dies of cholera on the 5th of July. Archidale Wilson, who's pretty incompetent, takes over. Um, and the first relief for this force that is about 2,500 strong sat on the ridge of Delhi comes from the Corps of Guides who do this extraordinary... Uh, ride under uh, Captain William Hodson all the way from the Punjab, several hundred miles in a matter of days. Then John Nicholson, this man, arrives with the flying column and the siege train, crucially with the heavy cannon. They um, start uh, bombarding Delhi. They make a breach. On the 16th of September, they make an assault. The Kashmir Gate is, is taken. Great picture of it. And there's about six days of intense hand-to-hand, house-to-house, street-to-street fighting. By the 20th September, they have taken back Delhi. One interesting thing happens that William Hodson, um, who's a dashing young man, says, I can go and, um, I can go and uh, arrest the King of Delhi. And he's allowed to go off on his own with, I think, three other troopers. They arrive at the tomb of Humayan, where... Uh, Bahadur de, um, Shah has taken refuge with about 6,000 of the remaining soldiers. He offers him safe conduct in, uh, uh, and if he surrenders his life, um, and uh, he surrenders. And this is a wonderful picture in the Illustrated London News of that scene for which he, um, Hodson became famous. He goes back the next day and massacres all of Bahadur Shah's offspring to make sure that there is uh, no possible succession. We then move to the tragedy of Cornpore. Um, and there are two tragedies I'm going to talk about. First of all is Cornpore, and the second is Lucknow. Cornpore was in Oud. Lucknow was the capital of Oud. Cornpore was um, commanded by General Wheeler, who was one of the very few generals who was very competent, loved India. He was a tremendous veteran. He'd married an Indian, and, uh, and so he had Anglo-Indian children, uh, a son and two daughters. He made two crucial mistakes. Once the local sepoys had risen... He trusted Nana Sahib, who was the first person I put up with a little um, uh, moustache, because he'd had some friendly 
um, contact with him. And secondly, he made the mistake of not defending the magazine, which was the obvious place to defend. Instead, he chose to defend the entrenchment. Um, he dug an entrenchment. There were very few buildings in the, uh, in the middle. For three weeks, they were bombarded, a heavy bombardment. They lost huge numbers of casualties. All of their food ran, ran out. And on the 25th of June, they were offered safe conduct by Nana Sahib. Um, on the 27th of June, they agreed, and they, they went down to the water edge where boats were there ready for them to take them up to Allahabad, where they would be safe. But it was a trick. Hidden in the, um, in the, in the trees were cannon and riflemen, and as all of the Europeans got on, to, uh, to, on board the boats, they were mown down by grape shot, and uh, the, um, uh, the Indians that were in command of the boats threw lighted torches onto the rushing that was on the top of the of the awning and then jumped into the water. Only 25 people survived this massacre. They were taken to somewhere called the Satichara Ghat, which was a palace um, in the middle of Cornpore, uh, a mini palace, where they suffered unbelievable deprivations for three weeks until on the 1st of July, 15th of July, news of the relief force came through and, and Nana Sahib then conducted a massacre of all of the people in there, which was about 300 um, uh, mainly women and children. And he did it um, asking two of the bazaar's butchers to come in with their, with their cleave axes. It was the most horrid sight. Um, then we come on to uh, Lucknow. That was the residency of Lucknow before and the residency of Lucknow after. This was the capital of Oud. It was defended by about um, 1,700 men. Uh, of which 600 were non-combatant, about 30% of them were lost, and it was relieved three times. Well, it was relieved twice and then, set, and then ultimately taken in the third time. Um, there was a 90-day siege, um, on day two of which Sir Henry Lawrence, who, if you remember, was the, um, the resident at Lucknow, was killed. Um, on the 25th of September, they were relieved by Sir Henry Havelock, and on the 18th of November, by Sir Colin Campbell. And there's this um, marvellous picture of uh, Sir Colin Campbell being greeted by Havelock and another general called Utram, who was there at the time. So, and Havelock then goes on to um, take the rest of Oud, and part two ends with Oud having been taken. This appalling massacre of Cornpore, Lucknow, this very, very brave siege that goes on from June until March in 1858, two reliefs and then this final bit, the second relief, by the way, where they take all of the uh, women and children and soldiers out, but they still can't take it. And the third relief, Colin Campbell invades Oud, takes Lucknow, and is then able to take uh, the rest of Oud, because that is its capital. Now we come to part three, and we've got 15 minutes left, and I apologize that we may not have time for questions, but I want to get on to this, because this is important. There are three... There are some wonderful people in this cast. The first is this great man, who was a man called Sir Hugh Rose. And he had been a diplomat. He'd been famous in Syria for, for riding between Druze and Maronites single-handedly to stop them fighting with each other. He'd only ever set foot on... He'd never set foot in India before September 1857. And yet he was probably the most general... the most brilliant general of the entire campaign. Apart from him, the cast are John Russell Colvin, who is a baddie, as I'll show, Major Ellis, Major Malcolm, and Rao Sahib, who is the younger brother of Nana Sahib, who is by now fled. After Cornpore, he realized quite what was going on and that he would be um, hounded, that, so he fled in disgrace. Mr. Colvin is really the, uh, 
as we will see, was the, um, uh, the villain of the piece. And here he is at Agra. Somebody writes, silly Mr. Colvin, he was, uh, by this stage, he was resident and in charge of Agra, which was under siege by the rebels. Silly Mr. Colvin is frightened and panic-stricken, ridiculed by the natives and not respected by the Europeans. Safe himself in government house, he left everyone else in danger. So now we come to the real part of this, which is the Rani of Jhansi. And I want to spend the last quarter of an hour talking about her and what she did. Here is her image. I said she was famous. Here she is on book, in film. Doesn't she look glamorous? Um, if you Google her, as I said, she's been the subject of so many Bollywood films. This is actually a, a, a picture of her in court dress when she was about 15 or 16. Uh, magnificent jewels. And I think the thing that's really startling about her is her eyes. And those eyes are not cruel eyes. They're eyes of extreme kindness and grace. And that is what she was, a kind and graceful woman and a great ruler. What about her character? Well, she was born and raised in the palace of Bithur. And she was raised, interestingly enough, with two of the other rebels. She was raised with uh, Nana Sahib and also um, Bao Sahib, who is the man that I've just mentioned as the villain of part three, who was the younger son of Nana Sahib. Uh, she wasn't royal. She was the daughter of a Brahmin. Uh, but because of her beauty, she was married um, in 1842, at about the age of 14 or 15, to the Maharaja of Jansi, who was called Gangadhar Rao, who was a man who uh, was an aesthete, often in debt. His family had been um, important to the British, very loyal, and in 1817, a treaty had been granted to them, guaranteeing the throne to them in perpetuity. And this was a treaty that we were about to dishonor. She marries the Maharaja because his wife has died and because he's desperate for children, remembering the doctrine of lapse. For nine years they try and they don't manage to have children. Um, and just before the, Ra the Raja dies, he adopts a son who's called Damodar Rao, who he chooses to call Damodar Rao. After, and he writes the, the, the Maharaja, he writes to uh, the local Major Ellis, who's the local British resident, in consideration of my loyalty, the government should treat the, ch the child with kindness. Uh, did it happen? No. What happens is that the, um, after he dies, excuse me, I'm just going to wipe myself, I seem to be perspiring. It's probably the heat as well as the enormous pleasure of talking to you all. Um, what happens, in fact, is that after he dies, the British are mean and ungenerous to a remarkable degree. It's almost humiliating. First of all, they cut her pension to 5,000 rupees. Secondly, they confiscate all her possessions. Then they ask her to pay off the Maharaja's debt out of her pathetic income. They confiscate two villages, which are needed for the upkeep of Hindu temples, and they dissolve her durbar and even put up a slaughterhouse to cows and pigs in the middle of um, the city of Jhansi. So unbelievably um, stupid. After the Mirut rise, um, the sepoys here rise um, in Jhansi. Um, the British flee to the fort of Jhansi, which is this, a very, very well defended fort where they go in but without any provisions. Um, the sepoys take over the arsenal, they lay siege to the fort, and after about two days, the British try and sue for peace. Uh, they're told they're going to get self safe contact, conduct. They come out, and 65 of them are massacred, including 20 children and 16 women. 
Was the Rani responsible for this? Almost certainly not. She was being, by this stage, she'd been coerced into leadership of this campaign, and um, uh, she didn't really want to be any part of it. Straight afterwards, she writes to Major Erskine, the district commissioner, and asks uh, to try and show that um, what she has done is everything in her power to stop this happening, but she's not believed. And from that moment onwards, she realizes that she is a wanted woman. So what does she do? She knows that there's going to be an army sent against her. She plays a double game. She, she rules the country to the best of her ability. She raises an army. She repairs the defences. But what she also does is to make, uh, to make reaches out to the British to see whether or not there is any sort of arrangement that can be made by them. Meanwhile, Sir Hugh Rose, the first of those people I showed you a picture of, he begins his campaign across incredibly difficult terrain. He relieves Sauger. Um, the Rani puts in place a scorched earth policy of um, burning all crops in front of him. By the 20th of March, he's arrived at Jansi. He lays siege. Um, and the, and the, the Rani, despite the fact that the army is now surrounding her city, decides to fight because she knows that another rebel army is coming to her, at her aid under a leader called Tantia Tope from the north. He lays siege to Hugh Rose, but on the... Um, Third, on, sorry, but he gets news that Tantia Tope has arrived on the banks of the Betwa River. So he makes the incredibly important and very brave decision to split his minute force, which was only about 2,500 men anyway, and sends 1,250 of them off to do battle with Tantia Tope. They do battle at the uh, Battle of Betwa River. He takes on an army of 25,000 and he beats them. Hugh Rose then comes back, takes Jansi, and the Rani of Jansi magnificently manages to escape by leaping over the, um, uh, the wall of the city with her son tied to her front. And all those pictures, uh, the statues you see of her doing that, are based on that incident. She goes off. There are a couple more battles that are fought, um, and both of which are lost by the rebel side. She, make, she, she joins with the rebels. Um, they don't mistakenly put her in charge of the army. Um, she goes off and eventually she comes to the decision and she persuades the others that the last stand has got to be made at Gwalior. And she comes up with this very daring plan, which is that they should seize the second richest and second most important fort in the whole of India, which is at Gwalior. Um, she sends an army against it, the Maharaja of Gwalior, who is supposed to be on the side of the British, but in fact his troops are against the British, sends an army out. She routes the army. They take over Gwalior. Um, uh, they spend too long celebrating their victory rather than seeing to its defences. Sir Hugh Rose then comes up, besieges Gwalior, and as he approaches, the Rani of Jansi is then sent out with an army on the eastern side of Gwalior to defend the eastern side, and she meets the oncoming British force. So now we come to this man here. I don't know whether you can see him. But he is my great-great-grandfather, and he is called Clement Walker Hennage. And what he did was he had been in the Crimea. He had, fought, he had charged in the Light Brigade. I've got a fantastic selection of letters to his address to his darling Mimsy, who is his mother back at Compton Bassett. He was born in this house here. He's a Wiltshire lad. He was born in Wiltshire. Um, he was educated like Canning at Eton and Christchurch, but unlike Canning, I'm sure he didn't get a first. He charged in the Light Brigade. 
Um, after the, 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 the Charge of the Light Brigade, rather marvellously, him and his brother Michael uh, played a game of uh, the field game, uh, with him commanding the Guards Brigade and his brother commanding the... Sorry, him commanding the cavalry, his brother commanding the Guards Brigade, where they fought each other, uh, where they uh, played the game on the heights of Balaclava, rather marvellously. That shows great British plomb. So... Uh, he has been at the um, uh, Battle of the uh, at the uh, Crimean War. He's then sent back to Ireland. He's then sent to India, and he's part of Sir Hugh Rose's one of the flanking columns that comes out to meet to go to to march to Gwalior to finish off this final piece of resistance at Gwalior. He's in charge of a squadron of the Eighth Hussars, which at the very point that the Rani of Jhansi has gone out with her um, uh, with her massed cavalry try and stop the British advance, he is told to charge this massed cavalry of um, rebels, which is commanded by her. He does so, and he meets some resistance from the uh, massed cavalry. He manages to split them, and as he splits them, a small party of about 30 Amazons, these are women dressed as men, magnificently dressed in the special uniform that the Rani of Jhansi had designed for her women um, uh, adherents, get split away, and his uh, 98 sabres then charge after these 30 people. And he writes to his mother that he sees a slight, fully armed figure helplessly whittled along in this cataract of men and horses, and again and again, this one leader, gesticulating and vociferating, attempted to stem the torrent of routed rebels, but all in vain. And in that charge, the Rani of Jhansi is sabred to death. So the big question that then besotted the British was who killed the Rani of Jhansi? There were three separate inquiries set up to discover the answer to this question. And in Lord Canning's locked notebook, which was found at the end of his, uh, his life, he wrote the following. The Rani of Jhansi was killed by a trooper of the 8th Hussars who was never discovered. The rebel army was in mourning for two days. The infantry blames the cavalry for allowing her to be killed. The cavalry said that she would ride too far in the front. So my supposition is that she was out in front of the cavalry, which is what she normally did. If you were commanding a squadron, you were almost certainly out in front of your squadron. It's quite possible that my ancestor, Clement Walker Hennage, killed the Rani of Jhansi. The trouble is that he was awarded the Victoria Cross for so doing, or not for killing, but for leading this cavalry charge. Um, certainly the people of Gwalior think so. My son, Zan, who's in the front seat, went out to Gwalior on his gap year, and he presented himself at the, the Museum of Gwalior and told them who he was, and they showed him the door. <laughs> so that is where my family has some connection with this. I'm going to finish, and I'm going to, have to, I'm going to now apologise. The one thing a speaker shouldn't do is not go through things. I have rushed the second part of this too much, hence the perspiration. I really apologise, but I hope I've given you some idea of how fascinating the Rani of Jhansi was, why she was such an important leader, why my ancestor possibly should not have been given the VC that I so treasure at home now. Um, and... I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. I'm afraid I'm going to, we're going to give up on any thought of questions, and I do apologise for that. I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. That's, um, <laughs> that's um, what's left of Compton Bassett, where Robbie Williams lives. <laughs> the stable block. Um, 
did we learn from it? This is, the this is the tomb of John Colvin. If I'd been going a bit slower, I would have told you that it was John Russell Colvin, who was the man who meted out this series of humiliations to the Rani of Jhansi that caused her to go so decisively into the rebel camp. This is how we honoured that man, this silly man, a tomb that is right outside the main Durbar Hall at Agra, the fort of Agra. What could be more insensitive? And also, the last and final word should go to, uh, I think, this woman. And I'm absolutely gripped by this story. This is um, Margaret Wheeler. I told you about General Wheeler, who was the general in command of, uh, of Cornpore. And he had a son who was killed, and a daughter who was killed, and a wife who was killed, who, if you remember, was Indian, during the siege. One daughter survived, who was called Margaret. And she went down to the, to the boats that were waiting for them on the river. And just before she got on the boats, um, she was attacked. And she held off the, um, the rebels with her pistols. <clears throat> and then to stop herself from being violated, she threw herself down into a well. And that was the story that was then celebrated across theatres and, and, and concert halls and uh, music halls around Europe for many years. In fact, what happened was that on, on her way down, she was found by, she was spotted by a sour who took pity on her, snatched her out of the column that was being trudged to their deaths, hid her, disguised her, um, did make her convert. She then fell in love with him. He was a man called Ali Khan, and she lived very happily with him for many years. She was then discovered as an old lady in the bazaars of Cornpore and by a Catholic priest who asked why she had chosen to do what she did. And she said that she chose what to, do, that to do what she did partly because she had fallen in love with Ali Khan and he was very kind to her and good to her, and partly because she had been so celebrated as a heroine that she couldn't possibly then go back. And in, the really interesting thing is that what happened after this story came out was that she was then vilified. The story about this heroine turned from this person who would have behaved as she did because she was half-caste. Did we learn? Probably not, and I think that story tells it. I'm now on zero, zero. I'm really sorry about no questions. Thank you for listening to me. I just want to tell you a little bit about the Chalk Valley History Festival, which, if you've any interest at all in history, is an absolute must this summer. Set in a stunning ancient chalk landscape in deepest southwest Wiltshire, this has tons of things going on. Talks, debates, discussions, an enormous living history encampment, hairy Vikings, First World War trenches, Napoleonic cavalry, World War II tanks, guns, aircraft. Yes, we have a historic air display too, including for the first time this year, the Battle of Britain Memorial Flights Lancaster, the only one flying in the UK. We also have an incredible array of speakers, many of whom you will have heard on Dan Snow's History Hit. We've eminent professors, household names, stars of TV, basically the very best historians around. And on top of that, there's all the fun you'd expect from a summer festival in Britain. Lots of incredible food, drink, music, fun. And of course, this being a history festival, all this goes on to a backdrop of musketry and the faint tang of gunpowder. So please do join us. The festival runs from Monday the 26th of June to Sunday the 2nd of July, and it'd be brilliant to see you there.